0: The High Power Hangout is a podcast that promotes and supports firearms, sports, and firearm safety. I do not support crime, negligence, illegal actions, or misuse of firearms. Always treat every firearm as if it was loaded, point them in a safe direction, and never put your finger on the trigger until you intend to safely fire and always be aware of what's behind your target. Discussions on this podcast, write-ins, or guest appearances are not responsible for your actions or inactions as a result of content covered in the show. Do not use reloading data from the show without working up from a considerably more conservative charge and solely working up until a safe load can be obtained. Hey, hey, everybody, welcome back to the High Power Hangout. I'm JP, and today is Thursday, September 14th, 2023. If you're an observant listener, you can tell that it is not, in fact, September 14th. With my work schedule, my match schedule, and the time that it takes to get an episode together, I had to get this episode written and recorded earlier than the posting, and then put it into editing mode and post it at a later date. You have my apologies for all the confusion here, but It'll all work out in the end. So you'll get this episode, then follow up with another episode a little later in order to close up some of the open loops that we're going to create today. Man, we are on episode 27. 27, by golly, he's more than halfway to his AARP benefits. We got a jam-packed episode today, and it's full of goodies that have been popping up over the last few days. And by goodies, I mean problems. Oh, let's see, a sling popping off in the middle of my rapid string, a round that failed to feed from the magazine, a round that failed to feed from the magazine, a round that failed to fire, a round that failed to feed from the magazine. Did I mention that one already? Maybe I said it three times. Since the last episode, I've been doing some research and tweaking for the match rifle. I've shot in two matches, and I've had a blathering of thoughts come up that spackled into today's episode somewhere. Well, first things first, the big lie follow-up. What I was speaking to in my Mythbusters debunking lab was maybe, I don't know, a little cold as far as the reception goes. I tend to get very analytical and very direct into my approach to things, and sometimes I admittedly get the blinders on, and I still meant what I said from a practical approach. But there are a lot of techniques that warrant some of the restraint in attacking the wind— One thing that both my non-competition friends and my competition friends know about me is that I can get a bit enthusiastic about a topic or an idea without necessarily thinking about all the aspects of the idea being discussed as a whole. So case in point here, is it case in point or case, case in case and point? Okay, point being my friend Dave out West sent a great follow-up email about some realistic aspects of the big lie. In order to balance things out in the force, I feel like it's probably necessary to bring them up here. And again, I'm not redacting what I'm saying. I'm just bringing in a second opinion here. So the first point that Dave made, and this is where maybe I lost a little bit of the force for the trees, was that this book was written in a totally different time, a time where the M14 and the M1 were king. While it doesn't change the way I feel about it, the equipment was a little different and had to be managed as such. Dave mentioned that the expectations of accuracy of those rifles was good, but certainly no match for the rifles we have today with the advancement of technology and experience. The point I think he was trying to make, uh, oh hell, my, my brain sees the point, but my the talking part of my brain struggles here. So if your shot calls maybe at best were hypothetically one minute of angle from the impact at the 600 yard line, which was maybe pretty decent because I know how hard of a hold that is with an M1, then there is a set amount of error in there that has to be taken into account. If I call a perfect X and it goes a half minute left, by today's standards, I'm going to come a half minute right because I'm expecting perfection. Though we all know I'm not capable of delivering perfection at any time here, but uh, we're operating on principle here. So, Getting back on topic, so M14 or M1 Rifleman calls a perfect X and it goes a half left. That wind call could have been correct. Or actually, maybe it's under by a few miles an hour, or honestly, maybe it's even uh, over by a few miles an hour. We don't know. How do we know exactly what's going on if the shooting system, i.e. the shooter plus the rifle plus the ammo, isn't able to produce results that are finite enough to play perfect mathematics on the wind call? So, by Jim Owens' call, then come a quarter right, not a half right. That would maintain group integrity if you had a lot of slop in there. I hope that was part of the point Dave was trying to make here, and we're both also pretty sure that Owens makes that same call as well. Another point that Dave makes, somewhat in favor of the big lie lie, or big lie theory, that was weird, is that there are times in which it feels appropriate to make less than full value calls. Not necessarily half calls, not necessarily, but less than full. For example, if everything is bang on and we're making great judgment calls, shots are going where you place them, the wind is fairly consistent, the NPA and the shooter are delivering good shots and feel great about everything, then yeah, generally full changes are to be made on the windage knob. But throw something out the window, then now you're fighting one of those good variables and maybe the time to make a full value correction on the windage isn't now. A good situation for this would be something like, we're fighting our NPA left and right and we just can't keep up with the wind. Now that's a judgment call, to maybe back off a gigantic wind twist on the knobs. Or if maybe the shots are starting to drift off call, even considering the wind, maybe that's another opportunity to give a not so full wind value change. Okay, I get that. You don't wanna put four clicks on and only go three clicks. Sure, like I said in the previous episode, there are situations that warrant this. Now I mentioned maybe a dying or an increasing wind value, Dave brought up a few others, and they're all totally valid. So, in summation, there are scenarios that are completely appropriate in which to click less than appears necessary. I'll bite off on that. Dave brought up a few great thoughts, including a couple others that weren't brought up by me today just for time purposes that support more of the thought process of what Jim Owens was trying to make. I really appreciate his counterpoint to the argument, because they're valid and they lean on both his experience and basic logic. So, Dave, thank you for the input. I really appreciate it. So, moving on to today's menu, which includes a brief hop into the load lounge to take a bite out of the ham burger special, which I've whipped up. See what I did there? Uh, a problematic results rundown covering all those problemos that I mentioned in the appetizer of the episode, and a. A very, very short new segment to whisk together those random firings of neurons that turned into a cake batter of mental thoughts for a dessert. Boom. Nailed it. All right, let's get moving. Okay, problem solved. I think I was just a little bit hungry. So Welcome back to the Load Lounge. There's been a bit of a buzz around load development on the interwebs that I've been following loosely lately. Guy number one says, can somebody please help me with some issues that I'm having with understanding what's going on with my load because it isn't what I expected. Then guys two through 11 will be a random clown car of people that either genuinely want to help the person asking for advice people that want to throw in their experience that maybe doesn't relate, people that want to change their entire approach to shooting, and people that just want to derail the entire conversation. A much wiser man once sarcastically told me, yeah, the internet is where you learn the most. Seriously. Actually, all of that fuss reminded me that my load development was only about halfway done for the 223 match rifle. So... I gathered a plan while I was on the road and I set it in motion when I got back home. Does anybody else do that, by the way, like work up a solid plan for the range while they are at work or on a conference call or something? And then they go write it down, get super pumped up and go home and execute that plan with unbreakable focus. There are people that walk in from work saying, honey, I'm home. And then there are people that sneak in the basement door without making a peep and start hammering out round after round after round without being noticed. One of those peoples is me, and one of those two peoples gets stuff done. All right, focusing back in here. I realized that I had worked up a decent load for my Sierra 77s and the bolt gun, and a powder charge that would work well with the burger 80.5s, but I hadn't actually worked up a seating depth test for the burgers. If you're pretty familiar with the burgers, They like to be seated correctly. Most of my service rifle barrels from White Oak love them at 40,000s off the lands, but we are yucky, yucky, boy, they're sucky at other depths. In my initial powder charge test, that's where I set it. 40,000s off the lands for the powder charge test because I figured it would give me at least a good, decent idea of a good load, which it did, but it did not outperform my Sierras which was sort of expected based on what I had with the service rifle, so I decided that it was just time to take them out to the range and do the depth test and tighten things up a bit. There's no sense in going into battle half-tested. Which brought me to a realization that I realized I'm down to my last box of Sierra 77 Match Kings. Whoops. I do have a bunch of those 69 grain Match Kings that hammer at 200 and 300 actually, So, let's throw that down the barrel of the Alessio Rifle and see if I can make something work of that. But first, the Burgers. Burger has a seating depth test recommendation that's designed to help shooters find the sweet spot for seating depths for the VLD-style bullets without burning up their barrels. Basically, by testing a few rounds at 10 thousandths off the lands, 50 thousandths, 90 thousandths, and 130 thousandths off the lands. By doing this, you'll get a good idea of where the good groups are hiding at. So I loaded four of each, and I had a sneaky suspicion that my rifle maybe also liked them somewhere between 30 thousandths and 40 thousandths off, so I loaded a few in that area. I won't bore you too many details here, but here are a few of the highlights. When I left the house that morning at 7am, it was almost sleeping weather, 58 degrees, dreary overcast skies, and a little bit of moisture and some drizzle in the air. Folks, fall is definitely upon us if you're in the Midwest, and people in their 20s are already hitting the pumpkin-spiced options on their drinks, and grandmothers around the country are starting to pull out Christmas decorations with enthusiasm. After I enjoyed the cool weather and did the testing, I found out that it really liked them at 90 thousandths off the lands, and it loved them at 30 thousandths, 33 thousandths, and 36 thousandths off the lands. For some reason, my chamber is throated really short. The freebore in this chamber, which was reamed into a wild chamber, or using a wild reamer rather, is putting the bullet into the lands just beyond service rifle mag length. Let that sink in for a second. If you take your service rifle rapid-fire magazine ammo and just pull it out about 10 thousandths further, boom, I'm engaging the lands. The Burger 80.5s are so short that the overall length of the cartridge is actually similar to my 77s. My Sierras jump about 30 thousandths, and the overall length is about 2.2 265-ish, so I don't have a lot of room to play around with here. The burgers are seated at one hundred and thirty thousands for this test, and those guys look like little tater tots. At 23 grains of N140, 23, there is a significant crunch of powder during seating. If I shake these guys, nothing, just one solid mass of freedom. Although it groups fairly well, the velocities had fallen off quite a bit. Not super important to me, but I didn't like that major, major, major crunch of powder on seating. <sighs> Gives me the willies. Also, I've noticed that my wooden seating die micrometer works really reliably until I start getting into really compressed loads. 10 hash marks equals 10 thousandths under normal circumstances but to get 10 thousandths at a compressed load depth is like 15 hash marks and a bit of resistance. I'm not sure if this is dangerous or not, or if there's a compression that's just too much, but on the conservative side, I don't recommend it. I crunch often, and I'm okay with it, but this was a totally different animal. Leave it to the professionals at Ace Hardware. Anyway, I walked away with a go-to load of Berger 80.5s fairly happy. Nothing shocking here. 23 grains of N140, a CCI 450 primer, seated 1.893 inches based to ogive, which gives me 33 off the lands, in a Starline 223 case. Keep in mind that's a thick case, so a little pressure is added into the mix. Average velocity about 26.95 in a 1-in-7 twist proof research barrel, at 59 degrees Fahrenheit. The little buggers of Sierra 69s underperformed most of the testing that I had set out to do. Of course, not having any prior loading data for N140 created sort of an obstacle. My decision was to look at my data for H4895, RIP, Varget, and Reloader 15 variances between my previous load data between Sierra 77s and 69s just to get an approximate idea of how much more powder the 69s enjoyed. wasn't the greatest plan, I know that, but it was just starting at a point anyways for me to get to the range, so I extrapolated, interpolated, extrapolated, I somethingated to find a starting and ending point. I loaded 4 Fowlers at 22.4 of N140, and then I just worked up 22.6 all the way up to 23.8 at 2 tenths increments. Surprisingly, it actually enjoyed the slower speed, so I think I'll maybe pursue that note a little better. Considering I have them available on my loading bench, and I know they work really well at 200 and 300, I'll probably throw them into the rotation. Between the time I got to the range and fired those 69s and testing at the end, The temperature had warmed up to an impressive 59 degrees from the balmy 58 that it was an hour ago. Which reminded me to write a sticky note to myself that this was well below my usual summer match temperatures. Not that I was sending these burgers down range at light speed or anything, but just a reminder to myself in the future looking back that it wasn't quite the summer day and my velocities were probably down just a little bit than I'm used to. So... With all the world's problems solved behind the loading bench and the testing bench, it was time to put everything to good use. Which leads us to today's problem-ridden results rundown. Wow, that is hard to say. Moving on. All right, all right, all right. Where to even begin this one? Well, how about the first match? That sounds logical. The first match was at the Chief City Shooters Club near Pontiac, Illinois. It was shaping up to be a beautiful day for the CMP 80 round match that they had set up for us. The temperatures were in the upper 60s and low 70s, a few passing clouds and a gentle breeze that reminded you of its presence but never pushed you off balance. The entire firing lineup included not four, not five, but three of us sending shiny projectiles downrange. And knowing these other two wackadoodles, three of us is about all we could probably handle. One of these great guys, let's call him Joe, was finally back shooting high power after getting his bionic leg reassembled and attached at the ankle. It was really great finally shooting with him after a year away from the sport. The other guy was the dreaded Jerry. I'm forever banned from shooting next to Jerry because on average my scores actually go down about 10 points each time I shoot next to him. It's a real statistic and it's a curse. Thankfully, the only curse I had during this match was a magazine that failed to feed on the second round. Now, I need to knock on wood here because this was the first magazine problem I've had in more than three years. Come to think of it, I don't actually even remember the last time I had to do an emergency mag swap. And in service rifle, I'm using those plastic mags. I may have just jinxed myself, but yeah, my plastic mags have never failed me, and you know how much I shoot. This time it came up with my Elysio mags in a rapid prone phase where I loaded the second magazine, I fired my sixth round, and the 7th round wouldn't even budge out of the magazine. Like, the bolt moved forward about a half of an inch and just stopped. At the time, I didn't feel like messing around with it, so I just did another magazine exchange and fired off the remaining 4 shots, and thankfully I was counting, and can still count all the way to 10. I was kind of perplexed by the problem and I wanted to check it out later, so I just set that magazine aside for further investigation. Of which I found no problems with the magazine itself later. Gary Alisio's magazines are really cool. They're the proprietary metal box magazines, but for increased bullet length, he allows the physical bullet to protrude forward of the magazines down a slot. So you're basically looking at a loaded magazine with five bullet heads sticking out of the front. Really nifty and really convenient for seeding your bullets a little further forward or maybe using a heavier bullet during rapids like a Sierra 80 or a Burger 80 and a half. But like I said, I couldn't see anything wrong with the magazine, so I wrote a note to myself to call Gary and see if he had any tips. More about that a little later. Between Joe's bionic ankle and Jerry throwing his faulty magazines 20 feet in the air after a rapid string. We had a really fun day of shooting and couldn't have asked for better weather. I didn't see the overall final scores for everybody, so the only thing I know is what I walked away with, uh, 794 and 39X. The 790s have been eluding me for the last few months, so it does feel really great to get back up in that score zone. As a side note, I wonder if the CMP looks at attendance of more than just the Nationals with regards to dollars of entry fees, number of shooters year over year at club level and regional matches and so on. And if they do, do you think they think to themselves, well, alrighty then, this is just the participation level. Or do you think they go, "Uh uh-oh. And if they go, "Uh uh-oh, is the follow-up thought starting with either, "We, we just hope that participation blah, 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 or is it, oh boy, we really need to blah, blah, blah. Anyway. After the 80-round CMP match, Jerry and I decided to break out the 30 caliber toys and do some fun shooting. I had an 1898 Springfield sitting around that hadn't been used since, well, by the looks of it, 1899. So I thought I'd throw together some rounds and see what it can do at 200 yards. Boy, that was eye-opening. For the 1898 Springfield and 3040 40 Crag, all I had time for was really to throw together some Hornady... 150 grain round noses, and some pre-primed brass with a conservative charge of 4064 in there. Now, we all know me, and I'm sorry to let you down here, but, uh... Ideally, I would have liked to mandrel the neck, trim, chamfer, and deburr the mouth, neck turn the brass, uniform the primer pocket, uniform the flash holes, place a serial number inside of each piece of brass's neck, work up a load with ladder testing and seating depth, and various powder and bullets, and, uh... Tested at each yard line, but, uh, <sighs> I think what I had was just sufficient. After doing a bang-up job of bore sighting, it, my first shot was an 8 at 4. Classic trigger yank. My next shot was completely off paper. And then a 6 at 6 o'clock. Something wasn't working here. We put it on the electronic target just in order to pick up shot placement a little faster instead of looking down a scope and after a few more shots found that it was actually holding about a minute of angle left to right, which is pretty good. But it was all over the place vertically. If you're familiar with vintage rifles, it means that it's probably shooter induced. Later that night, I realized that my front sight was really shiny and the sun was out. So that probably led me to think I was shooting my six o'clock hold perfectly. But in actuality, my aim point was all over the place. Lesson learned. Oh, by the way, that crag held a pretty good SD of around 15-20. to 20. The crag shoots, but I don't shoots the crag. I'll have to blacken that sight and work at it a little harder in the future. The next match I was able to get to was the Tuesday night Irregular Rifles League in Bonfield, Illinois. For a quick refresher, we shoot an 80-round match starting at noon, then a half match in the evening, usually around 5.30 all on Silver Mountain Electronic Targets. I love this format because it gives me a chance to work on a ton of stuff, including techniques, loads, consistencies, you name it, they've got it. And with a three-hour break in between the 80 and 40 round matches, there's a lot of time to run practice or for dry firing. Basically, for a high-power shooter, it's just a, it's a whole day of fun. Let's just skip the match results because you'll quickly see why this day became a delightful disaster. While the day started off nicely and offhand in offhand and Rapid Sit, it quickly fell apart at the 300-yard line. Firstly, in Rapid Prone, my sling detached itself from its preferred position during the first magazine swap. I happened to be recording myself on video on my cell phone so I could look at things later, and that provided a little comedic relief. I watched the video later and saw the sling snap off while I was changing the magazine, and in the video, I looked at the sling, and then I tried to get back into position thinking I could somehow shoot the string with no sling. Hello, idiot mode. I was allowed to refire the string, whether or not it would have counted for scores beyond me, but out of principle I thought, yeah, let's go ahead, it would be a good idea to run through the string anyway. Disaster. The third shot from the magazine didn't even go off. But there was a hell of a lot of recoil. Self-induced recoil is what I'm talking about here. Lesson learned there. So I ejected the round. I continued the string. I did one magazine exchange, and the first round wouldn't feed. The bolt moved forward about a half of an inch, and it felt like I hit a wall. So that string was over with, because... How negligent of me, I did not, in fact, have a second emergency magazine loaded. At this point of the day, it was about 2 p.m., and I had three hours before starting the evening match, so it gave me some time to examine the misfired round and also look at that pesky magazine again. The magazine showed nothing out of the ordinary. The misfired round did, though. The tip of the bullet was discolored. As another shooter mentioned, it looked like it was annealed. The tip was a bronzy silver color, almost like that chameleon paint that you see on some souped up cars. Personally, I had never seen that before, and neither had anybody else on the line. We were more surprised at that because the round hadn't been in the chamber that long. In fact, after reviewing the video, it had actually only been in the chamber for less than four seconds. Hardly enough to anneal a bullet tip. I'd have to investigate that later, not for any other reason more than just sheer curiosity. The primer on that round did have a lighter-than-normal strike on it, and there was powder in the round. We cast it off as an anomaly and decided to move on with the day. After some practicing between matches, it was just time to kick off the evening match, which was 20 rounds of offhand and 20 rounds of rapid sit. And that's where things got a little weird. I experienced something that I'm just going to call delayed ignition. It's not quite a hangfire. I'm sure there's another term for it, but that's what we're just gonna call it today. During my 20 rounds of offhand, I had a few rounds, five to be exact, that were set off a little later than usual. Usually the trigger pull and the rifle bang happen in unison. I think that's what we're all used to. During these five oddball shots, The trigger would break, a brief pause would happen, and then bang. Just enough time between each other for my brain to go, the heck? I don't know how long the delay was. It probably was less than half a second or or less than at least a second, but it was enough for me to watch my follow-through move to the 4 o'clock position in the 8 ring. Three times. And once in the 7 ring at 6 o'clock. There's nothing like pulling the trigger and internally screaming in your head because something isn't right. Do you know how terrifying it is to squeeze the trigger on a good shot call, not knowing if it's going to go off right away? Like when sometimes you pull the trigger, you can feel the click and boom immediately. Surprise! Then sometimes you pull the trigger and it's a one potato boom. That stuff is absolutely terrifying. I once had a grand with the trigger that would lose the second stage wall after about the eighth or ninth shot. I never had any idea when that trigger was going to go off. So now I'm trying to mentally prepare myself for that and become a follow through master with serious focus. That is not easy, but it's a great wake up call to prove to myself that I do not have the follow through that I thought I originally had. That part is certain. So this happened to me five times in offhand. One shot was an X, three shots were eights at four o'clock within a minute of angle of each other, and one shot was that seven at six o'clock. I learned a whole lot about my follow through process and trigger squeeze with this situation. Almost like a ball and dummy drill, except I'm the dummy here. And it happened three times during my rapid sit stage. I actually had that one recorded on video because I wanted to see how drastic the delay was. During the magazine exchange, I audibly called out which shots had delayed ignition just so I could review it in the video later. What were the findings? I could not see the delay in the video. It just wasn't enough time between trigger movement and the round going off for me to pick up. But it was absolutely noticeable from a first-person vantage point, I promise. So there I was, the end of the match on a Tuesday night, leaving Wednesday morning through Friday night with a match beginning Saturday morning. Not a lot of wiggle room to do some potentially major fixes. So let's put you in my troubleshooting shoes for a moment to see what you would have thought about doing. You had one round that didn't go off. Multiple rounds feeling like they're firing late in the chamber after the trigger was set off. And it's a newer rifle with about 700 in a Remington 700 style action. Think about that for a second and we'll go into the path that I took, which may or may not be the right direction. And I know you don't have all the information of the history of the gun, so it's not really a fair question to begin with, but uh, we'll leave it at that. What would be your troubleshooting steps? All right, here's what I did. First things first, I didn't have a lot of time, so I didn't want to fart around with any dumb ideas that I can create, so I started asking around on the firing line. Initially my first thought was that there was maybe some brass buildup in the firing pin port which was maybe jamming or wedging the firing pin. I don't have a lot of experience with this style of rifles, so I just thought about that would maybe delay around from going off. Now I've also noticed some brass shavings on the bolt face after a long match. But that had been the case for the last 600 rounds and it hadn't caused a problem this far. Nothing excessive on the brass buildup, but it's definitely present. Now, the obvious option that hopefully most of us came up with was, was it a bad batch of primers or maybe a bad batch of powder? Certainly feasible. But again, with my experience, I thought this was unlikely. I was working through the same 1000 box of CCI 450s And while it's possible to get a few bad primers in one of those boxes, the last 600 rounds hadn't given me any trouble. Possible? Yes. A likely culprit though? Eh, maybe. I'll keep that one in my back pocket in case I can't find a different solution. But what about that powder? Again, along with the primers, I think it's also unlikely. It was loaded with the same powder that I shot in the previous match at Chief City, And was the same 8 pound powder keg I had been shooting this morning and testing, and also had fed those 600 rounds since the beginning of when I got this rifle and barrel, so it showed no issues there. Again, it's possible, but highly unlikely. The other idea that was brought up remotely from another shooter was head spacing. If the round had been sized far shorter than the headspace of the chamber, then the unsupported case may not have been secured against the bolt face, which would cause the firing pin to have a lighter-than-normal strike. That's possible too. However, I had to also consider that this was unfired Starline 223 brass from the factory. Not that that alone is any reason to ditch this idea, but I had been running that same shipment of 1,500 cases that I had already processed working my way up from the lightest weight to heaviest weight meaning this was the same brass that I had been using for the last six or seven hundred rounds with this rifle alone without issues I had fired cases on the heavy side and on the light side of the brass with no problems was it possible that maybe these problem cases were headspace short and I just haven't reached that part of the batch yet yeah absolutely do I think it's a likely cause though no, with hesitation. Now that being said, I've taken three decapped cases from that match and I've taken three new cases from the case slot that I was about to load in the next couple of weeks. What I want to do is I want to measure three of these fired headspace cases. So let me grab my yardstick here and using the wooden comparator, the first case comes out to uh, 1.453. Next case comes out to 1.453. And the last case comes out to 1.453. I would say that my chamber is probably fired at 1.453 for cases. So let's check out some of this virgin brass. Now, I've this is live on scene. I've not done this before. 1.450. So three thousandths difference. Next one. that's not good, Uh, 1.451. So they're a little off, not a huge deal, but three thousandths is what the factory brass is below my fired cases. So if I'm firing a case, it's expanding three thousandths. I don't quite think that's enough to cause any problems, especially considering service rifle bumps at three to four thousandths. Uh, for safety or whatever you want to call it. So I'm going to throw that one out the window for now. Realistically, we've more or less confidently eliminated the primer, the powder, probably the brass, but not necessarily the firing pin because being somewhat obstructed, it may cause a little bit of a sticky, you know, hang up. So that was the next logical check and maybe one we could work with on the range. So I had a competent individual, see, competent individual. He was there to show me how to remove the firing pin from the bolt sleeve so we could do a quick check. Using the high-tech wooden picnic table there, he unscrewed the back of the bolt and examined the inside. Now, by this time it was dusk, so we really couldn't see too much. But after I got home, I found quite a bit of gunk in the bolt sleeve. I have to assume partially because I was running out of time and options, that this was probably playing a pretty big factor. I wiped down the firing pin assembly, I sprayed some degreaser on the inside of the bolt sleeve, and I gave it a once over with a flashlight just to see what was in there, and I was convinced that now it's clean and I reassembled the bolt. I ran the trigger a few times to make sure I put it together correctly, and then I put it back in the safe. Considering the trigger feeling goofy was coming up on average once every five shots in the evening match, I worked the trigger about 20 times, and I felt nothing out of the ordinary. The other option that I thought of during this last three day trip I was just on was that maybe it's a trigger issue. It's a Bix and Andy two stage trigger that's been really reliable up to this point. I'm not really a trigger master, so I'm going to leave that one alone unless I have similar issues that arise during this weekend's upcoming match. Now, I did have a chance to speak with Gary Alisio on Wednesday, and all his help has been extremely useful. When discussing the delayed ignition, his thought was actually initially the head spacing being short as well. So we chatted about that for a little bit. I didn't have the data that I just pulled now, so I can, you know, put that one aside. Regarding the magazine's feeding, he gave me a few tips about how he loads his magazines. First, with the 223 rounds, they should be more staggered in the magazine. I had been loading the magazine like a service rifle, push down the top round a little bit and slide in the next round and it would slide backwards and downwards, but no, that was wrong. Remember how I said these magazines were unique because the bullets stick out of the front of the magazine? Well, Gary mentioned a few tips that may help stop my feeding problems. First, push the magazine follower all the way down. You can do that with an Elysio magazine because the follower sticks out the front of the magazine then just dump the rounds in the top of the magazine and release the follower upward, allowing the rounds to compress and stagger. If they don't stagger like a Garand clip, then just tug them over into position. He also mentioned that a longer bullet will help it feed better. Well, unfortunately, I can't do much there. First off, I'm already loaded for this weekend's match. Whoops. What are you going to do? I gotta plan ahead for a situation that I'm in like this sometimes. Secondly, he was mentioning that both the Sierra 80s and Sierra 77s like to be around 2.300 or 2.350 for good magazine feeding, instead of the service rifle 2.250. Well, because the throating is so short in this barrel, I can't do that. I can get to about 2.290, but not 2.30. So I would come up about 10,000 short of his target and at that 2.290 I am right against the lands. Probably not enough jump for those Sierras. Now I can switch over to Sierra 80 grains, which might give me some more length to help mag feeding, but I'm not quite there yet. Again, not having had any issues prior to this week, I think that my mag feeding issue had more to do with the way I was stacking the rounds rather than the OAL of each round. Gary said when they were stacked incorrectly, The bolt would move forward about a half of an inch and then the round would remain flat, being pushed into the forward part of the magwell rather than jumping into the feed ramp. Sound familiar? Yep. So, the day of this riding is Thursday, and at the time of this episode is posted, the Saturday match may or may not have already happened depending on the free time I have on Friday evening. I'll have next to no time on Friday night to get home from this trip. But I will be doing some last-minute checks, heading to the range Saturday morning for the Illinois Short Course Championship, and hoping for the best. Ah, see? This reminds me of the days of figuring out how to service rifle. I feel like I'm chaotically trying to get things together and figure things out and fix random problems with a limited amount of time and a limited, though very experienced, group of help and mentorship. It's exciting to see my brain working sometimes. I really love this sport. Which leads me to my last point before we get into a pit ponderance, which is that I said at the beginning of this match rifle digression this season that the aim was to stay motivated and interested in the sport, avoid feeling dejected after struggling with service rifle, and to pull some new techniques over that will help my service rifle game. Match rifle is not my home. It's fun, it's been exciting, it's been extremely challenging, but Service Rifle is where I will continue to call home in the future. To keep myself honest, here's what I've learned so far that carries into Service Rifle. I've learned a few new techniques on how to improve my offhand shooting. In 2022, I felt invincible. Not trying to boast, just putting this into perspective for the listeners here, But if I wasn't shooting in the 196-197 to range in standing, something was off that day. This year it's been down about 4 or 5 points on average. That's still not terrible, but in my home state, that darn near takes you out of the top 3 spots right away. So Match Rifle has taught me that, despite my original viewpoints, a little bit of cant is acceptable. A bit of a more tight position in the arms and chest creates a bit more stability. Also, that firing a little faster is acceptable, too, and marking each shot in my scorebook, although fun to do, isn't absolutely necessary. I've also learned to change up my sitting position a little bit, which I've brought up in a previous episode. I've added a natural cant in sitting, and I've moved my sling elbow forward of my left knee, which has eliminated a significant amount of heartbeat, pulse, and decreased my overall movement. I'm starting to feel like I did back in 2022 again. Well, what about prone? Well, prone gonna do prone things. I've definitely added more focus on my trigger pull, both manipulating the trigger consistently without snatching And getting my trigger hand set in a position that allows for a straight back pull on the trigger rather than to one side or another. Usually for me, that's to the right. Thanks in part to Nancy Tompkins here, who recommends a pinch style approach between the thumb and the trigger finger to make the pull more straighter. And that's my word, not hers. But learning is occurring. And it turns out you can teach a dumb dog other dumb dog tricks. When I feel it's right to jump back into Service Rifle, I'm going to do so at the first opportunity. And I'm hoping that I can get some of these good habits to carry over so that I can get a more solid foundation to build upon during the season compared to what I had in 2023. Moving on. oh, why not? Why not start another segment of the show that I may or may not use in the future? I realize that my email inbox is full of messages that I've sent to myself that are both useful and useless, and I just can't fit them into normal discussion points. So we're going to start this new segment together and give it the name Pit Ponderance. Those are the thoughts that you go through while you're waiting for the next shot to impact the dirt so you can mark paste and score the shooter on the line. Those thoughts that just disappear as quickly as they appeared. I think normal people call them shower thoughts. Anyway, with no aim, no reason, with no intent, here are some of the messages that I've sent to myself that mean nearly nothing, but maybe they'll hit the right person's ear at the right time. Let's get started with no context. As I sit here drinking my fifth cup of turbocharged coffee for no reason other than boredom, I've come to realize that your brain really likes consistency. That's pretty obvious, actually. In shooting sports, it's our job to train your brain to enjoy the right thing consistently and not the wrong thing consistently. Case in point, you can't load yourself up on six cups of coffee every single day for a month in an effort to trick your brain into having a steady hold like Karl Bernowski the day of the match by having no coffee that morning. The brain is going to want something badly, like, Dude, something's missing here. Things are not right. Let's go into panic mode. You ever get that feeling like something's missing? Kind of like Pavlov's dog. If you're not familiar, This dude, named Pavlog, trained his dog indirectly to salivate at the sound of the bell. He did that by way of, uh, every time he fed his dog or something like that, he would ring a bell beforehand, and as the dog ate his food, the dog would salivate. After time and time again of this process, the dog would basically start salivating any time the bell was rung, because that's the sequential process of events after the bell rang. In reality, though, Other dogs obviously wouldn't drool if you rang a bell at them. Anyway, if you drop your coffee habit in the morning, it's not going to work like you think. You're trained for something to happen, i.e. drinking six cups of diesel fuel. And if you suddenly stop, you're not exactly sure what's going to happen, i.e. your body's going through a caffeine withdrawal. But it's not right. In reality, we need to do that to our brain, to a point and not necessarily to demand six cups of java loca to be mainlined into your arm, but maybe something more healthy. Pulling the opposite of an unhealthy habit the day of the match isn't necessarily the way to go here. Point being, if you're a coffee drinker, especially a high-quantity high-octane fueler like myself, you can afford to cut back a bit in the morning of the match. If you have healthy habits, stick with them. Keep your performance up. Try to keep things healthy. Try to keep things consistent. And another thing. For me, getting a good NPA sometimes presents challenges in consistency. Like I'll be shooting one day in Rapid Prone, the next day I'll come back and something will be totally off. Like I'll put my right hand on the grip and get my trigger finger in the position, and something's shifting drastically when I relax my right arm. Or I'll be halfway through a prone string and realize that I have a lot of pressure in the buttstock on my shoulder and it's shifting forward towards the target. When did that happen? Or I'll be sitting and something in my left hand feels different than it did last week. Getting a good MPA is like pouring a laser hot cup of coffee to the brim of your coffee cup, turning off the lights, and walking down the stairs without spilling a darn thing. It has to be perfect. And it has to be repeatable, and you have to be able to do your job behind the trigger without interrupting that beautiful NPA you worked on so hard. Otherwise, you're going to spill some coffee all over your hands and emit some choice words. And lastly, I've realized that the more that I learn, the less I know. Which is a really weird relationship between two things. I learn more, I feel dumber. Congratulations, you've just taught me how dumb I am. But I guess on the bright side, that's just more stuff that I have an opportunity to learn about. But I guess that also means that I'm consistently getting dumber. You see where I'm going with this? All right, we're probably pushing 45 minutes here, so let's close this bad boy out. The next episode will cover the Illinois Short Course Championship in Bonfield, Illinois on September 16th, which may or may not have passed by this point, I'm not actually sure. A few upcoming matches on the horizon that I may or may not be attending. Some with excitement, some with apprehension. September 30th is host to another Illinois Butte. The Fort Defiance Rifle and Pistol Club will be hosting an 80 round high power match on electronic targets. Join them in the morning on the western part of Illinois near the town of Wyoming. Hopefully there's ice cream involved. On October 7th and 8th in Milan, Illinois, is the Illinois Fall Classic on Saturday and the Bjornstad Prone Match on Sunday. The Fall Classic is your standard 80-round high-power match with ciders. The Bjornstad Match is a classic 3x600 match, all slow prone, all at the 600-yard line. Saturday is open to both Service Rifle and Match Rifles, and Sunday is any rifle and F-Class. Information can be found on IllinoisHighPower.com, under the tournament section. Also on the 8th of October, if you happen to be a little further west, it's the Eastern Nebraska Gun Club Mid-Range Match, which is another 3x600 match at a beautifully challenging range. That one's located in Louisville, Nebraska, and their schedule and details can be found at engc.us. ENGC, Eastern Nebraska Gun Club.us. Racine, Wisconsin is rumored to be back in action on October 12th with their Thursday night league. I'm really pumped about this because they're going back to work after their hiatus throughout the summer. 50 round matches will be fired there on Thursday afternoons, and if you're interested, please let me know and I'll get you some details and get you pointed in the right direction. I think I'm going to venture down to Spencer, Tennessee to check out a service rifle match at the famed Dead Zero range to see what kind of trouble we can get in down there. That one's on October 21st. Hopefully the weather holds out for that match because I'm really looking forward to that one. I may be scouting for a new home range. Anyway, thank you so much for sticking with me on this really long saga today. If you have any suggestions, thoughts, tips, tricks, shout-outs, you want to vent about something, or you have ideas on my delayed firing problem, which may admittedly be solved by now, or you have an upcoming match announcement, please let me know. I'm here listening at email jp at hphpodcast.com, jp at hphpodcast.com. That's HPH for the High Power Hangout. Remember to make every single shot count. I'll see you on the next one.